finish what I started this morning. All right. And so, Galatians 6, verse 14. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. I think that it is good for us to reflect upon the cross. And we talked about that this morning, how vitally important it is, and for us in particular to think about Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday has an Old Testament background. Y'all know where that's found? The triumphal entry is a fulfillment of what Old Testament text? This is to win a million dollars. No, I'm kidding. Zechariah 9. Behold, daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem, your king comes riding in on a donkey. The foal of a donkey. Right? Bringing, no, in humility and bringing salvation. How many of you didn't, you didn't know that? Did y'all not? I thought I schooled y'all in the Old Testament. That's one of them, but I may, that's my fault. Missed that one. Or you were not listening. So, but the triumphal entry is a straight fulfillment from Zechariah 9. And praise God for that. Uh, what kind of king is he? That's what Zechariah is dealing with as he comes into Jerusalem. Our king. And of course, he's coming to die. And so we contemplate the cross. We ended up this morning thinking about multiple songs, either ones that I talked about or ones that Brother David led. Uh, it was God's wisdom to decree to save fallen man without compromising his holiness or his justice. And there's so many hymns written about that. Is it any wonder that as Isaac Watts meditated on the work of the cross, he would write, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count as loss and pour contempt on all my pride. So we're singing about the love of God and we're singing about the power of God, yes, but we're also singing about the manifold wisdom of God in his plan to save sinners and through Christ, Christ which was demonstrated on the cross. When did God plan the cross? What did y'all say? <laughs> Amen. There you are. It wasn't like as Adam sinned and the Bible says when on the day that you eat, you will surely die. It's not like the Lord said after Adam died spiritually, wow, what are we going to do now? That's not the case at all. It was before the foundations of the world. Peter will remind us that the Lord Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest, made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. 1 Peter 1, 20 through 21. So Peter will tell us that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So we dare not take for granted the manifold wisdom of God that planned, that he planned before the foundations of the world. Again, the great Puritan John Murray said, the more we emphasize the inflexible demands of justice and holiness, the more marvelous becomes the love of God and its provisions. 
What a great statement. I, I know that there are people who get tired of hearing about sin. And there are people who get tired of hearing about judgment. We get tired at times of hearing about holiness and justice. Can you, pastor, just be more positive, right? Again, listen to Murray. The inflexibility of God's justice and holiness, the fact that he has his law and that he is the lawgiver and the judge. The more we think about those things, the more we preach this, the bigger the love of God becomes. And I agree with that. When we do away with God's justice and holiness, at that moment, the gospel becomes something merely nice that God did for us. As we maintain what the Bible says about the doctrine of the judgment of God, and we maintain what the Bible says about the doctrine of hell, the more stunning God's grace becomes, and the more stunning His, his love becomes. When one does away with the doctrine of hell, you've just eclipsed much of the glory of the cross. If the only thing that is awaiting unrepenting sinners is non-existence, there are those who believe in annihilationism, then what did Jesus actually pay for on the cross, right? Christ the Lord bore the wrath of God. He did not bear the wrath of God. If he did not bear the wrath of God in our stead, then we will bear the wrath of God forever. That's what the Bible teaches. So the atonement is the accomplishment of Christ in his person, human and divine. What did he accomplish? In his atonement. Now, Tonight's going to be more of a historical lesson of it's theological and historical. But there's been a lot of people that had theories of the atonement throughout history. And a lot of them contain a kernel of truth surrounded by a husk of error. That's the way it looks when you look at things like that. What is Jesus doing on the cross? The minute you say, and you said it tonight, right? The moment you say that, that he is, God is doing something that he planned, then we're forced to ask, what explicitly is he doing on the cross? If God planned it, and it's not an accident, which we would... Again, if you read the scriptures, you see clearly that even what is happening to him as he was crucified was in fulfillment of the Father's plan for the Son. You see that clearly in the book of Acts. What you're lifting your hand to do, what you are doing against God's anointed, is what the Lord our God predetermined to happen. And again, it meshes clearly with Isaiah 53. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. And we see that, and we feel the weight of it. But once we agree with the Bible that what Christ is doing is something planned by the Lord then we have to ask the question, what is he doing on the cross? And so throughout church history, there have been theories about the atonement. You may have read some of these theories of what is going on on the cross and what do people think about it. One of the earliest theories, theories, and I, I'll say that because Paul didn't have a theory. He had a doctrine of the atonement, right? Paul had it right. 100% right with all of the teaching on expiation, propitiation, reconciliation. With all that, Paul had a doctrine of atonement, uh, not a theory. But one of the earliest ones was called the ransom theory. The ransom theory. This was held by Origen uh, between 250 and maybe early 300s. 
The guy was brilliant, but he had issues. Origen said that at the fall, what Adam did was to sell humanity to Satan. So if you're thinking about ransom, then you, you understand what's going on here. So Satan became the legal owner of humanity. He appealed to passages such as one of the ones we saw in Ephesians where Satan is the god of this age. He took that too far. Origen did. And the ransom theory of the atonement is that Jesus comes. He pays God. He pays a ransom. So Jesus comes and he pays a ransom. Now, is ransom a biblical word? Well, absolutely. Does he pay a ransom? Well, yes. The Greek word is lutron. He does pay a ransom. Mark 10, 45. What does the Bible say? The Son of Man did not come to, but to, and to pay, yes, to give himself a ransom. It says it clearly, okay? So the ransom is paid through the death of Jesus, but it's paid to Satan. It's what Origen believed. The Father says, I want to buy humanity back from you, so I will pay the ransom price to get humanity back by giving my son to die. And here's the, here's the kicker to the ransom theory. God actually tricks the devil, and on the third day, Jesus rises from the dead. Kind of the ultimate gotcha, right? So where's the kernel of truth in this? Well, a ransom was paid. Where's the error? Well, Satan is not the rightful owner of humanity, period. Second, nothing was paid to Satan because nothing is owed to Satan, okay? So hold this in your head, though. To whom was the ransom paid? He did pay a ransom. All right, y'all good with Y'all like that one? The ransom theory. No, I don't like it either. Again, there's a, there's, there's a little bit of truth there. It, it says one thing or so that's accurate. And these guys were thinkers. I mean, just think about it. They, they read the scripture and they came away with some some crazy things. Now, this was extremely early with the origin. Um, just think about the circulation uh, of biblical text at this particular time, which would have been minimal, but yet here he is coming up with it. All right, number two. The next is called the satisfaction theory of the atonement. This was whose view? Anselm's view in the, seven, in the 1100s, he actually wrote a book called Why God Became Man. That's a good title. It is. And he argues that sin dishonors God's glory. Is that true? Absolutely. And because sin dishonors God's glory, because sin dishonors God's glory, God must act in divine judgment against those who have dishonored him. Is that true? Again, yes. Then what God does is he sends his only son. This is what necessitates the incarnation, why God becomes man, to satisfy his justice or God's demands for the justice against those who trampled his glory. Does that sound true? Absolutely. So the satisfaction view of the atonement is true. But again, there's one thing to remember. Is that all the truth? Is there more to the atonement of Jesus satisfying the, than, God, than Christ satisfying the demands of God? Yes, there is. So the satisfaction theory is 
as, is good as far as it goes, but it doesn't give the whole picture. Next, we have one of my least favorite. It's called the moral influence theory. And this was a good old medieval Catholic theologian named Peter Abelard. And he came up with something called the moral influence theory. So this, the atonement was God's or Christ's act of love that now morally influences us to be loving, sacrificial, and giving people. We gain salvation through faith and love by following the example that Christ gave us. It's often referred to as the example theory. In this theory, Adam sets a bad example. Yet Christ, by self-sacrificing sacrificing, and his martyrdom, counteracts Adam's bad example and gives us a good example. He then transforms all of us into loving people. So where is the truth in the moral influence theory? Does the atonement have moral influence on those who believe it? Well, it better. It better have an influence on you, right? We have texts that teach us that God's pattern of giving his son as an act of love should be our pattern of loving each other. 1 John 3.16. The other John 3.16. 1 John 3.16. The father's example at Calvary is, in fact, an example for us. But where is the error? You're not saved by an example, all right? I'm not saved by sacrificing myself for other people either. You could lay down your life for other people in a noble act, but you're not saved by, by making a sacrifice. You are saved because Jesus made a sacrifice, okay? So there is the moral influence. There is some truth there. The error is that it is not how one is saved. Now that one ought to hit close to home in our therapeutic worldview society that we live in. In their view, the whole purpose of religion is to improve our sense of well-being rather than address the situation of sinners before a holy and righteous God. And so that's why we get into trouble when we tell the truth about the atonement of Christ or our need for salvation or our need for Christ. So that's the good old moral influence theory of the atonement. This one is probably my least favorite. And it is called the governmental theory of the atonement. Hmm. Well, when we say that, government, it must be bad. <laughs> so this was the common Armenian view of the atonement. And some Armenians still hold it today, but really common years ago. What is it? Well, that is the belief that the death of Christ is not substitutionary at all. Rather, Jesus does not suffer and die vicariously for us. I mean, I'm sorry. He does not suffer and die vicariously for us. Rather, what he's doing on the cross is that God is showing us how opposed he is to sin and evil. In other words, God has a moral government. He upholds that moral government by opposing sin and evil. And in order for God to show us how much he was opposed to sin and evil, he puts his son on the cross to show us how much he values his own moral government. So it is not substitutionary. It is only a reflection of how bad God hates sin. 
All right, where's the truth there? Does, does the cross show us how badly God hates sin? You better believe it. Yet you better hope that there's more going on than God simply saying, I want to show you how much I hate sin. If that's the only thing that is happening, then that was immoral. Right? I will show you how much I hate evil by doing the most immoral thing that has ever taken place in the history of mankind. So, it's correct to say that the cross reflects how much God hates sin and evil, but there's nothing that is saving about that. Another view is called Christus Victor. How many of you have ever heard of that one? Yes. Um, basically, it teaches that Christ's death releases us from Satan's dominion and domain and tyranny. Does that happen? It, it actually does. Hebrews 10, 14. I'm in Ephesians. Are you surprised? The latter part of Galatians is connected, right? But in Hebrews chapter 2, listen to even what the scripture says about that. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Is there a victor part of that? Well, sure. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We, we know that Colossians comes to mind. He publicly disarmed the enemy having overcome him through his cross. So there is certainly victory in what Christ Jesus has accomplished. But is that all that there is to the atonement? Being delivered from Satan's tyranny. Is this all you need to know to be saved? Absolutely not. Athanasius believed in something called the recapitulation theory. And what that is, is that Christ is the new Adam who reverses what Adam did. You tracking? Christ in his life recapitulates all the stages of human life, reverses the fall and the curse, and restores paradise as the last Adam. And is that true? If you read 1 Corinthians, you'll find that there's a lot of truth here. But, but is that all that is truth? Is that the whole truth? Nope. All right. Finally, we have one more called penal substitutionary atonement or the penal substitutionary theory. What is that? Well, God's law has been violated, demands justice. Jesus fulfills the just demands of the law through his active obedience, having never sinned, and his passive obedience, becoming sin for us, obeying completely. And then he, obeyed, of course, obeying the law on behalf of his people. And then suffers as our substitute, paying the penalty that our sins deserved. Now, I'll tell you tonight that none of the other important aspects of Christ's saving work, his act of obedience, his conquest over the powers, his vindication of his government, any moral example... None of that can be established unless his death is understood as a vicarious substitution of himself in the place of sinners. Which is, of course, the primary meaning. It is wonderfully true that he died on behalf of and in the place of sinners. In our stead. Penal substitution has been argued throughout and articulated throughout history in many theories. Even Thomas Aquinas would have held to penal substitution. However, 
It wasn't until the Reformation that it becomes, in a sense, the focal point of the atonement. Penal has to do with the justice system, right? Christ is my substitute who pays the penalty for my sin. Is this like the satisfaction theory? Yes, it is. There is not one single theory of the atonement that can capture the multifaceted beauty and glory of the atonement. However, listen, when it comes right down to it, the heart of the atonement is substitution. Christ for me. So again, the psalm, Man of Sorrows. Listen to it again. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Don't you love that verse? Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. So I pray that your love for Christ, for his atoning work today, has been deepened. I mean, that was my prayer all week as I started contemplating the cross. Father, help our people think deeper about the atonement, about the cross. And there should be something that throbs in the heart of a child of God when he considers the love of God, giving us Christ who suffered and died in our place. Amen? So y'all are just studied theologues tonight. You know all those views of the atonement. There are a few more, but those are the major ones. You can just type that in, Google search, and I promise you they'll be right there. Or you can just get you a good theological book, systematic, and you can read all about those. It's good to think about it, isn't it? Some of them, the guys are whacked out. Anybody that takes out substitutionary atonement is in trouble. And, uh, of course, we believe that 100%. All right. So it's it's early, and you get to go home. Any, Any questions tonight? Or anybody want to share more wisdom about the theories of the atonement? Anything tonight?